0: It's nice to be with you again this morning, here on our first Sunday of Advent, when we traditionally start to panic if we haven't done any Christmas shopping yet. I don't know about you, I haven't done any. Linda, who I live with, she's written all her Christmas cards, she's wrapping presents. It puts me to shame. But no, that's not what we're here to remember today. We're here to remember Christ's coming, both his, his first coming as a little baby, entering the human race, and also to look forward to his second coming. That's the themes of Advent, when Jesus comes again in his full glory, to bring both judgment on one hand, and to usher in the new creation for the faithful on the other hand. And both of our readings today are Advent themed readings. So if we start with, with Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 2, if you want to follow it, page 405. And here the, the prophet, Isaiah, has a vision of what will happen in the last days. And perhaps, well, Jeff's very good, he's on the ball there, he's got it on the screen. It's worth saying the last days is quite a broad term. Um, In John's first letter, he says to the churches, dear children, the last hour is here. And that was 2,000 years ago. So it is quite a broad term, the last days. And from a biblical perspective, the last days is any time basically from Pentecost onwards. We are in the last days and we have been for a couple of thousand years. And what is the last days going to be like? What's going to happen? Well, according to Isaiah, verse 2, it says, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all. It will be raised above all of the hills, and people from all over the world will stream into it. So God's kingdom's raised high, all will see it, and it shall reign above all other kingdoms. And the faithful believers from all over the world will worship. It's perhaps worth noting that this is an Old Testament reading, and yet it is not just for the Jewish nation. It's all peoples will come. And it's a message that is there throughout the Old Testament that God hasn't just come for the Jewish nation, but through them, through the Messiah. He's come for the whole world. If you think even, even back to Genesis, it says there that um, Abraham had his name changed. Originally, he was Abram, which means exalted father. And God says to him, no longer will you be called Abram, exalted father, but you will be called Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. He's told he would have descendants like the numbers of the stars in the sky or the number of grains of sand on the seashore. So, from the very beginning, God's plan was always to be reaching out to the whole world, that all peoples would come to worship. And we see this to quite a large extent at Christ's first coming. He lives, he dies on the cross. Pays the punishment for our sins. He rises again. He ascends to heaven. He pours out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The disciples speak in other languages to get the gospel out to the nations. <coughs> and Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd and he quotes another Old Testament prophet. He quotes Joel. who says, And it says, In the last days. The same phrase that we have here in Isaiah. In the last days. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Not just on the Jewish nation, but on all people. And it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is very much a message for everyone, for the whole world. And I think St. James, in its, in its way, does quite well at reflecting that diversity of all nations coming to worship. Um, in, in choir practice the other night, I was looking around our circle. There was only, I don't know, 15 of us. I just thought, how many different nations are represented here? As you we went around the circle, quite a few. And if you expand that to the whole of St. James, how many nations are represented? 30, 40, 50, I don't know. But it would, be, it would be a lot. Jesus is for all people. all nations. I don't know if you were here last week, Jeff spoke, and he had a a diagram, a cartoon up on the screen, to illustrate how when in the Old Testament it looks forward to Jesus' coming, it doesn't always differentiate between the first coming and the second coming. It described it rather as seeing two mountain peaks in a distance from the point of the observer, they're both just far away. It's like they're one. I haven't got a nice cartoon for you, but if you can keep that that in mind. It's the same with our passage today. God's kingdom is raised high, all nations come to him, are taught about him through Christ's first coming, and the subsequent actions of the church, evangelizing the world. And yet also, it's not complete until Christ's second coming because we read at the end of Revelation when Jesus comes as both judge and king ushering in the new creation it says that there's a new Jerusalem and that the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it it says there will be the tree of life and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations it says there is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and the Lamb. They are dressed in white robes and they cry out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So Jesus is returning for a global church, people from every nation and tribe. And we read in Isaiah verse 4 that the Lord will mediate between the nations, settle international disputes, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Well, the gospel that we proclaim is a gospel of peace and it can bring reconciliation, it can cross boundaries. Yet the completion of it is again not fully realized until Jesus comes again. That's when there'll be no more wars. It says in Revelation that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So Jesus has come. And yet he is coming again to bring everything to completion, to wrap everything up, as it were. But when is he coming? The saints in Revelation cry out, How long, O Lord? Well, our second passage tells us when he's coming. Matthew 24, verse 36, page 594. It says, However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So there you go. There's no point really trying to work it out. If even Jesus doesn't know when he's going to come back, only the Father knows, then why bother? I mean, various religious groups and cults have over the years, and presumably still now, try to work out the date when, when the end of the world will come. But it's a complete waste of time. To quote my, my favourite TV show, Black Adder, it's like fitting wheels to a tomato. Time-consuming and completely unnecessary. Only the father knows, and he's not telling. However, we are told it will happen all of a sudden when we're not expecting it and that we need to be ready and that it will happen as it did in Noah's day. It says, verse 38, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered the boat. Now, looking at that, you might think, well, what's wrong with banquets, parties and weddings? I, mean, I quite I quite like the idea, particularly banquets. That, that appeals to me. But the point is that they were living in a worldly way, just living for themselves and having no regard for God. I mean, Noah had been building his boat for some time in full view of them. It was a great big sign of impending judgment, but they didn't want to know. They didn't want to listen. Perhaps a bit like the church today, preaching the gospel. Often the world doesn't want to know. Who wants to hear about judgment? Let's just enjoy ourselves and have a party instead. But when Jesus comes, they will be swept away, just like in Noah's time. It's amazing that the story of Noah is one that we use predominantly with, with children, or Sunday schools, or colouring books with the nice animals. It's a story of judgement. And yet, of course, it's also a story of salvation. Come into the ark. Come to Jesus. There you will be safe from the coming judgement. There you will find true rest. In our passage, Jesus uses the title of the Son of Man to talk about himself when he's coming again. Verse 37 and 44. It says, this is what it will be like when the Son of Man comes. And I've always wondered about that phrase, Son of Man. It always felt a bit nondescript to me, a bit, what does it mean? It's a bit soft. I mean, Son of God sounds strong. Son of Man sounds somehow a bit less. Until I was shown where it came from which is from the book of Daniel. And it's quite a different story there. book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. The court was seated and the books were open. then it goes on, verse 13. And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when we read of Jesus describing himself as the son of man, it is not a weak, namby-pamby kind of title. But he is coming with sovereign power. Given to him by Father God himself, the Ancient of Days. And it's, it's awesome in the full sense of the word, awesome, when Jesus comes. And what will happen when he comes? Well, back to Matthew verse 41, 40, 41. It says, Two men will be working in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding flour at the millstone, one will be taken the other left. So Jesus divides the people into two very distinct distinct groups. Those that know him and follow him and those that do not. And there's a very different fate awaiting these two groups. I don't know if you've come across any of the books or films from the Left Behind series. They They were very popular Amongst Christians, and there was even a big budget film a couple of years ago with Nicolas Cage. It was on at the cinemas. Uh, You may have missed it. It wasn't on for very long. (laughs) It wasn't very good. Even Christians didn't like it. Um, It received a customer rating review of 2% on one of the film sites I saw. Anyway, it's based around the idea that when Jesus comes, that before Jesus comes again, when things get bad in the world, all the Christians get zapped up to heaven to avoid the really bad stuff, is the, the premise. And it's based on verses like this, plus, in my opinion, a certain misunderstanding of Revelation. You even hear of pranks played at Christian summer camps where the child wakes up one morning to find themselves alone in the dormitory. And there's just piles of clothes on the floor next to the bed of where his friends were. And and the child bursts into tears, thinking that his campmates have all been raptured and that he has been left behind. A bit cruel. Maybe funny, depending on how warped your sense of humour is. But just to say, I don't think that that's in line with the rest of the Bible's teaching, the idea that Christians don't have to face suffering, that they get taken away before things get too bad. I mean, try telling that to Christians in Iraq or Syria right now, reports of ISIS crucifying Christians. God isn't zapping them up to heaven to avoid the last days that they are in. And I think in our passage as well, it's a bit ambiguous as to say who's in the better position. Are those that have been taken off? Have they been taken off to heaven or have they been taken off to judgment? Have those that have been left been left to face the great tribulation? Or have they been left to reign on the new earth with Christ? So it's not clear whether it's best to be taken or left. But what is clear is that when Jesus returns, it will happen when we don't expect it. Or least expect it, and there will be a separation. And that we have to be ready for this return. It says, keep watch, verse 42, like a man guarding his house against the thief. So you have a you have a watchman normally at night time whilst everybody else is asleep. So for us, are we spiritually alert? Are we spiritually watching? Or are we spiritually sleeping? I don't know about you, but I never wake up in the morning and think, Oh, I wonder if Jesus will come back today. And, and why not? <laughs> Perhaps I, I should be. Or why not? It's because it's been 2,000 years. We get complacent. He hasn't come back yet. We think, oh, maybe one day. But the Bible says, no, you need to be ready. You need to be alert. You need to be expectant. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, addresses this. He says, In the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness to be. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The inference there is that he waits so that more people can become Christians. And it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Same as what Matthew says. And in light of this, he writes, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So that's the watching that we are to be engaged in, living holy and godly lives, not trying to predict when he's coming back or what time, but to be ready for his arrival, living a holy life, so that we have no fear of the Day of Judgment, but rather we look forward to it as the King is coming for us. The King is coming for his bride, the Church. Perhaps this is an opportune time for us all just to have a a sober look at our own lives and to ask, are are we ready? Perhaps make the changes where, where we need to make the changes to make sure that we are indeed ready to meet our King Jesus when he comes. I'm going to finish by reading the lyrics of of the gospel song, People Get Ready. People get ready, there's a train coming. You don't need no baggage, just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. Don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. People get ready for the train to Jordan. Picking up passengers from coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and board them. There's room for all among the loved the most. There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. Have pity on those whose chances are thinner because there's no hiding place from the kingdom's throne. So people get ready I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. I'm ready. Yeah.